good to worship with you all today. Um, we are looking now at the end of David's life. You know, we've kind of traveled together for a while, uh, studying David's life, and uh, we're at the end. And so it's been a uh, very beneficial journey for us all. And uh, here we see today that he does something. He offers to God um, a sacrifice, and it's costly. Right? Uh, it's interesting. I was thinking about the title of this, and I had to include that it was a costly sacrifice because often in church world today, the word sacrifice has kind of lost its meaning, and we've forgotten about that. But the idea of sacrifice is it costs me something that I have to give to someone else. And that's what we see a picture of. Um, you know, we, uh, when I was growing up, my mom had a, a small deli restaurant for a while. And uh, one of the ladies who worked there was a lady named Olivia. And she was like, kind of like an aunt, almost like family. She was with us so long. And she had two kids, son and daughter. And the daughter, who was like probably 20, and the son was a few years older, the daughter was a model, and um, she was like, a, I remember she was a um, Budweiser girl, right? And she would, they'd have posters of her up at restaurants and things, and so they would all have these stories and how, you know, she was going out with Oscar De La Hoya, and she knows these guys and that and so on. And so she was kind of like a celebrity, and obviously a lot of guys were interested in her. And she had an older brother. So it was interesting because every Valentine's, she would receive, I mean, just so much flowers and candy and gifts from all these suitors. You know, they, she would just get so much. And um, uh, her mom would tell us, yeah, my, it's funny because my son uh, never buys anything for his girlfriend. He just takes it from her at the end of Valentine's Day. By the end of the day, she has so much. And so he'll just go and just take a bunch of flowers and stuff and give it to his um, girlfriend of the time. And you think about that for a moment. Um, boy, doing this in vain, uh, going through the motions in vain, right? I don't know if you've ever been guilty of regifting or you've ever been a victim of being regifted to. Uh, probably maybe both. You might have some thoughts on that. But going through the motions and here... Um, we see that we are called, and I love this quote, J.I. Packer says this, and it uh, talks about the Christian faith, sharing the Christian faith, and he says, we must not conceal the fact, in this one line, we must not conceal the fact that free forgiveness in one sense will cost us everything. So we talk about grace and forgiveness and gospel often. We forget It'll cost us everything. Sometimes we look at, uh, wow, they have to give up so much. Boy, the Hare Krishnas have to give up so much, or the Buddhist monks have to give up so much, or the, the Muslims have to give up so much to go to Mecca. You look at them, but really the one that is called to give up. And so we gather today, and this is kind of a very convicting message. Uh, often in Western Christianity today, we hear things, words like, oh, it's convenient, it's fun, it's easy, it's nice. Oh, there's good coffee, there's donuts, the music's nice, the room is nice. And we've all gotten somewhat accustomed to that. And now, if it is inconvenient, 
It is costly. It interrupts me. I say, I, I don't know. Do I want to be a part of that? But we're called to be a part of something that costs us everything. This is the faith that we have in Christ. What he gives us is free. We respond by giving everything back. You know, he first loved us, so we love him. Uh, David here, just a little background. He's now older. This is one of the last stories of David, the last things that he does. He's no longer the young man that we have pictured fighting Goliath or doing these heroic things. He's an elderly man about to retire. And he makes an error. He sins against God. He does something at the end of his life. He takes a census. He counts all the people and all, especially the army. It's kind of like what you see sometimes at, in North Korea or China. They will display their army to the, to the world to show how strong they are. And that's what the pagan kings would do back in the day. They would count up how many chariots do we have and how many archers do we have and how many foot soldiers we have. And they would now show that this is my power. And David took his cue from the pagan neighbors and he does a census and he counts everything. And it's in the midst of that that he is convicted of his sin. The sin was not so much of taking account. It was attributing his power, attributing all the hard work, all the achievements and security of Israel now to the military power, not of God. Giving a thank you speech or a hall of fame speech, not giving credit to the right people saying, I did it all. He forgot to thank God. And so he is convicted of this. And now because of that, Israel faces King failed. They are going to now uh, receive the punishment from God. And then the prophet Gad, G-A-D, approaches him and tells him this. And he is convicted of his sin. And he goes to offer a sacrifice on what's a, a piece of land called a threshing floor. A threshing floor was... Uh, the size of like maybe a little bit twice as big as the stage or this front area, circular maybe in shape, but it was a hardened floor and it would often be in some of an elevated place, a hill or a mountaintop, and they would bring the grain and they would crush the grain. And as they would be higher up, the winds would blow and all the chaff and all the things they can't eat would blow away and they would gather the grain. So this was the threshing floor and he says, go up there and offer a sacrifice. Many people in the day would go up to the mountaintop to make their sacrifice to their gods. He says, you go and do the same. And he goes up there. Um, and when he goes, um, Arauna is the name of the person that owns the land. He sees him and he says, I'll give it to you for free. You're the king. Right? It's like as if someone famous comes into your, if you had an establishment, they come in, take it for free. You're doing it for a noble thing, take it for free. And he says that famous line, I will not you know, offer to God that something that costs me nothing. And he pays for it and he offers it to God. And in this story here, we see a sacrifice that's happening. And we see, first of all, a sacrifice of the heart. We think of heart today as my emotion. So sometimes we read this, I didn't feel like it. You know, I, I didn't feel the burden. I didn't feel like I had to go. It wasn't a feeling, it's the center of the will of a person. The heart dictated who they were. And he sacrificed his heart. It says in 2 Samuel 24.10, But David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people. And David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done, but now the Lord, uh, please, now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. There's a change of heart, or the heart directs him. 
And so we must sacrifice our hearts to God. What does that mean? You say, well, that, that's so esoteric, right? Um, how do I sacrifice my heart? What does that mean? We have to, that means we have to guard our hearts. We have to determine in our hearts what is important. What are your core values? What are your non-negotiables? Is it really God, family, you know, is, is it those things? Man, if it is, you have to now leave that. His actions led him to sin. His heart, God used his heart to bring him back. And it was his stability. It was the core of the man here. It's interesting. So he comes back to repentance. The repentance he brings. Um, and I want to be, you know, I wanted to highlight this. Sometimes we think of repent favor, avert God's judgment. It's almost like a second grade kid that got caught by a teacher of uh, stealing a pencil. What do I do? How do I get out of this? How do I show remorse? Um, but it's not so much of the act as repentance is about relying and knowing that I've broken the heart of the person. And often we get, we, we might think of, man, I did this, I got caught, I got busted. But it's not so much that I got busted and the trouble that follows me. It's the one that I have now sinned against. I've hurt. And we have to think so carefully about that. Right? It's interesting. John the Baptist, he's nicknamed the Baptist because he baptized people in the beginning of the Gospels. John the Baptist, he goes and he brings a new baptism and crowds are gathering in the beginnings of the Gospel. The crowds are all gathering to John the Baptist. And he is baptizing people. But he says his baptism is described not just as a normal baptism, but a baptism of repentance. Well, that's kind of interesting. And the one group of people that will not come to him are the religious people. The Pharisees and the Sadducees and so on. And he says to them uh, in Matthew 3, 7, You brood of vipers who warned you to flee from this wrath to come, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. You see... Uh, Religion tells us, go and earn something from God. Go and do your duties to God so that you could get something from him. You could avert any kind of punishment. And you could now get the gifts from him, not so much about being in relationship with him. It was in repentance that says, I need forgiveness. I come to your mercy. This is very different. Not, how can I pay for this? Um but to have actual remorse. You know, it's interesting that in, right, in the religions today, uh, what are some of the differences? And one of the differences, for example, Buddhism. Buddhism, they teach no such thing as sin or original sin. In Buddhism, uh, the teaching is there's no actual moral right or wrong, good or evil. There's a kind of a false duality, and uh, you have to get enlightened to get out of that duality of light and darkness and so on. And if you could work your way out of that through um, the eightfold path that the Buddha has laid out, you can get out of that cycle. You could be enlightened and then eventually reach nirvana. So as you think about that, if there is no sin, there is no concept of a God I have to now come before, you can see why this is so appealing to today, to Hollywood today. Oh, I, I'll go because, I don't, yeah, there is no sin in my life. I'll dictate what is wrong. I'll find the answer within. And here we see 
that the costly sacrifice that David brought, and we bring, is to, it starts in the heart. It starts at the center of the person. What is the core beliefs that you have? It starts there. It leads now to action or obedience. The, there's a sacrifice of active obedience. Secondly, it says here, um, af, as he's confronted by the prophet Gad in 2 Samuel 24, 19, David went up at Gad's word as the Lord commanded. He takes action. Hebrews 13, 15, and 16, right, it tells us about offering to God, a neglect to do good and to share what you have for such sacrifice will please God. It, it leads to some kind of an action. Many of us are kind of stuck between number one, the heart, and even our hearts might say, yeah, I know I should do these things. Yeah, I know I should go and repent, or I know I should, yeah, I should go to church. And we haven't taken the next step of obedience. Not selective obedience, but to obey what God says, to obey the things that are inconvenient, to obey the things that go against the things that are easy to do. You know, uh, the story of Zacchaeus, the tax collector. Tax collectors in those days were crooks. They were those who stole from their own people for Caesar's in Caesar's name. So they were hated by everyone. And Zacchaeus climbs up a, a, a tree to see Jesus and comes to faith. And something happens when Zacchaeus comes to faith. Zacchaeus says, he makes a confession, his heart is changed. And then he says, half of my possessions, I just want to give it back. Because all of his gatherings, uh, money making was illegal. And he says, if I, whoever I've wronged, I'll pay back four times as much. So there's this change. It wasn't uh, the other way around. It wasn't Jesus said, hey, if you give back half, if you go and give back four times and make these amends, then I'll go to your house. No. He says, I'm going to your house. His heart is changed. It leads him into action. He voluntarily says, I'll give this away. And there has to be some kind of a active obedience in our parts. What is a sacrifice? What are we called to do? How can you obey God? Loving someone who is difficult to love. Being somewhere that's inconvenient to be at. Uh, acknowledging God's presence every morning as I can, every night before I go to bed. What, what, what is it? What, what are some ways we can go? And this is so open for all of us. But that will lead us. And it led David to come to the conclusion that ultimately a sacrifice cannot be cheap. It cannot be in vain. You cannot go through the motions. You cannot go through the motions of it. I, we all, me included, we all have to be so very careful because so we've been doing church a long time. All right, we're going to celebrate our church's overall church's 12th year anniversary. We've been doing church for a while. Some of us have grown up in the church. We've been doing church for a long time. And sometimes we just do it in vain. It says here, when David finally approaches uh, Arauna in verse 24, the king said to Arauna, no, but I will buy it from you for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God. That costs me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. He will not offer to God something that costs him nothing. He insists on paying for it. It's not so much that God needs these things. 
it means that for him, God is so worthy, I cannot give something that is cheap to him. I cannot give something that is of nothing and no cost to me. It's interesting, there's a little verse, a uh, little phrase there, that cost me nothing. It could be translated also, in vain. That same phrase is used in Malachi 1, 6, when the judgment comes on the, the priests of the day. They're going through the motions. And I just want to read a few verses in God's uh, accusation. He says, a son honors his father, a servant his master. He goes, and God says, if I'm a father, where's my honor? If I'm the master, where's my fear? Oh, priest, you despise my name. And the priest responds, how have we despised your name? And God's response in verse 7 of Malachi 1, by offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how, how have we polluted you? God says, when you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? When you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? He says, present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts. And later on in verse 10, he says, oh, only if, if one of you will shut the doors that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. That even one would not go through it in vain. That cost them nothing. But everyone else, leftovers, things they didn't want. And for David, it meant I want to give him something. You know, I, I, I remember hearing from a lady who would go to church and every uh, Saturday or Friday before she'd go to church, she'd always go to the bank. Like a, like a grandma at church, and she would always ask for new bills. It wasn't a lot, but she'd ask the bank for new bills, like newly printed bills, and she would get those, and then she would use those for offering. There was some kind of meaning behind it. And we could scoff at that. Hey, well, it's the same value. What's the big? But something about the idea behind it, I think, is so valuable. When you love someone, you want to give them something. You know, uh, this past several years, my family, we celebrate, it's a big birthday. Um, my father-in-law turned 80 a couple years ago. 80 is a big deal. You know, after 21, any birthday that ends in zero is a big deal. Anything in between is like, eh, whatever, you know. I don't need his parties for 35 or, you know, 42. But oh, he made 80. He's a very frugal man. Lived in the same house for 40-some years. Uh, and the clothes he wears... They'll bust out leather jackets from 1970-something. And I know it's from 1970-something because it looks like it's 1970-something, you know. And he'll brag about it. I bought this when I, you know, so on. Uh, he used to drive this Cadillac uh, that the weather had beaten up all the paint on it so much. He was the only person I knew that actually went and got his car painted, right? But he bought it. But look at that. It's brand new. And I was like, why, why are you painting a car? Just get rid of it, you know. And uh, I painted it brand new. Inside's all rotten. There's, there's a sermon illustration here somewhere with this car, right? And uh, the outside's clean. Um, I just thought that when you say it. But I remember his birthday came, and so we said, all right, we, we should get him a car. We, we bought him something used. We bought him a, a, a car, and he loved it. That's what we could afford, and we, we got it for him. A few years after that, you know, it's interesting because, uh, you know, my oldest daughter turned 16 a few years after that, got her license. They asked, are you going to get her a car? I said, of course I'm going to get her a car. That's the whole point is my freedom. You know, they drive, and I'm no longer Uber, right? And uh, so we're going to get her a car. 
He says, what, what are you gonna, he asked me, he said, what kind of car are you going to get us? I said, I don't know. I just got this vision. I said, I'm looking for something a little bit used and okay. He goes, no, 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 go get her a new car. I was like, oh, well. And he's like, I'll write you a check. Just get her a new car. So he wrote a check. And th- this, I was so shocked because he is very frugal. And the 27 years I knew him, he barely bought me anything. So then I was like, oh, my gosh. And my mother-in-law, her jaw dropped. She goes, oh, my gosh. You're, you know, talking to my wife. Your cheap dad is writing a check for this much to buy a car. And he wrote a check. Said, get her a new car. It's my granddaughter. I said to him, I said, you know, you have two granddaughters. There's another one. What are you going to do about her? She's right here. Don't worry. I, I, I've saved up for that. love someone, you want to go and give your best to them. There's a beautiful story of friendship that I read recently. Two Olympic hopefuls were on their tryouts, the trial to get into the team. The year 2000. Taekwondo was going to be now an official Olympic sport that year. These two gals were now competing to make this spot. And it happened that the two of them were left. There was one spot open. But these two, uh, Kathy Poe and Esther Kim, some of you are like, do I know Esther Kim? Is that one from our church? Uh, No. But uh, they were best friends. They grew up training together from the age of 13. Esther Kim's dad was their trainer instructor. And they worked together. They were the best of friends. And what had happened was they, as they're going through the elimination rounds, the next fight was between the two of them. The winner is going to go make the team. You couldn't script it anymore. Uh, One of the gals, Kathy Poe, in the previous fight had dislocated a kneecap. Could not fight. She was injured. And so they said, well, she still has to fight. You have to technically win. And this gal, Esther Kim, uh, they showed up on the flight, and she says, I'm going to forfeit this fight so my friend can go. And she forfeited there with her dad inside and everyone. And goes, she's my best friend. And I, when I read that, I thought I misread that article. It was in the New York Times. I said, oh, what happened again? Her dad let her forfeit this after all these years of training, right? What kind of friend is this? And I was like, do I have a friend like this? I was like, I hope I have a friend. Oh, she might win. The, they might win the gold medal, but I, I feel like I've won the gold medal in my heart. And she said something so uh, pure as a, a teenager would say. And she gave that spot to her friend. Jesus Christ is the pearl of great price, the, the hidden treasure. He is the shepherd that the sheep know his voice and run to him. He's the one that the church says we're the uh, bride and he's the bridegroom. And there's this love relationship. He first loved us. And I want to ask you today, and this is a, a, a convicting message. What is it that you bring to him? Do you catch yourself saying, boy, it is inconvenient. Boy, it's going to cost me some time. Why are they doing that on a Saturday morning? I don't like doing things like that on Saturday morning. Why are they doing that on a Wednesday night? I don't like going out on Wednesday. It's, it's difficult. Oh, I got to drive a little bit. I got to go do this a little bit. What is it? 
what are you doing for the Lord? If you value God and you understand that, and your faith is growing in that, he is the greatest of all. And so we give to him. I cannot come to you in vain and give you nothing. I have to give you something. We do that with our loved ones and we do that with the Lord. That's the picture, the response of the gospel. Disciples died hanging upside down on crosses, being beheaded. Somehow because they, the free love they received costed them everything. But when you love someone so much, you don't think about the cost. You say, ah, write a check. Here you go. Hey, you take my spot. Go ahead. I get more joy of seeing you get it than me. And that changes. And so that's the message I want to share with us today. And maybe challenge us today. What does it cost me? The next time it gets a little inconvenient, it starts pressing you. Following Christ is demanding certain things of you. It's okay. He's worthy of all that we can give to him. Let's pray together.